welcome to Real History, the podcast where we decide what's real and what's not when it comes to fictional depictions of real historical periods. My name is Hugh David, I am your co-host and co-producer, and with me is... Hi, I'm Gemma, uh, Patron. I get... <laughs> How Are do you... I mess up an intro? That's okay, <laughs> it's early in the morning for us still, for us, not for everyone else. Uh, <laughs> more it could be coffee. really early in the morning for them. Uh, yes, uh, and uh, she is my co-host and co-producer. We are here to talk today about the 1999 mini-series from Canada, Joan of Arc. Mm-hmm. And we are going to talk about this because... Do you remember why we're doing it today? Isn't it you... she got set on fire like 500 So years. we're recording this the day before the anniversary <laughs> of her it. execution. I have such a lovely way of putting it set on fire. <laughs> well, the thing is, that's what the that, that's the that's one of the uh, that's one of the earliest scenes in the film. Yeah, in the TV series, right? And it's very well depicted, and it's very smartly depicted. Mm. And they, uh, it is the, the and when you come to the scene, because this is arguably what most most people know about her. Yeah. In terms of general knowledge, what do most people know about Joan of Arc? Well, they know that she was uh, involved in some way in religion, and they know that she was ex- she was burnt at the stake. Yeah. And yet she's still a saint. Yeah. And so everyone gets confused when you say yes, but she was burnt at the stake for being a heretic, but heretic by the church, <laughs> by the Catholic yeah. Church. And they're going, well, how, how is she a saint? And then you have to explain it. But the miniseries, let's give. So, so 1999 is an interesting year. Right, because we're on the verge of a massive change in the style of how TV and film is done. Yes. Okay. Ninety nine is the year that the Matrix comes out, and changes a lot of people's ideas about how CGI and uh, special effects can be integrated into what we do, and but also in terms of what we think the mainstream audience will put up with. Mm. Fight Club does something similar with its it, it's an adaptation of uh, specialist techniques to screw with your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's out in '99, but also a sense of interesting adventure and fun with history is back because '99 is also the year of the Mummy coming out yes. the remake with Brendan Fraser. '99 um, is an amazing year for cinema. It's before we even get into the TV, <laughs> and so I think what's interesting is that that year we have, for some strange reason, there was no anniversary that year. There were two separate, well-publicized attempts yet again to tell the story of Joan of Arc. Mm. This is one, and it has. A cast that has a lot of famous faces in it, in particular the great British actor Peter O'Toole, mm-hmm. um, who won um, an Emmy for his performance, and uh, Lily Sabisky, uh, who'd only done a few roles at that point, but but is great in—I mean, absolutely great in the lead. Uh, there's also Jacqueline Bissett, Shirley MacLaine, Maximilian Schell, Olympia Dukakis, uh, Powers Booth, Robert Loggia. Oh, I love Robert Loggia. He's only in it for like three minutes. And I was like, it's Robert Loggia. Um, <laughs> but also Neil Patrick Harris as King Maybe Charles VII. Maybe Neil Patrick Harris. <laughs> yeah, King Charles VII. And he's actually pretty good in it. But yes. interestingly, it looks and feels like something slightly older than 99 whereas the other version which is a big budget movie from uh, French director Luc Besson starring Mila Jovovich as um, who was then going out with him but is now married to Paul Anderson of the Resident Evil films she's in Um, they so she she's in that version and that was called The Messenger Joan of Arc mm. and that was big budget and it's got big stars and big battles uh, you know Dustin Hoffman plays the sort of in, in, inquisitor role in 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 the, in the in the sort of dramatic interrogation courtroom 
finale type thing. Mm. Uh, Vincent Cassel's one of the knights earlier on. Um, it's it, you know, big, diff, totally different kind of film. So and that one uses CG. It's more modern. You know, that you look at that and you go, okay, fine. But you look at this and you think, okay, older TV. It's a mini series. It's like it's the sort of thing we used to watch a lot in the late seventies and and early eighties. Yeah. Big budget miniseries, lots of names, but they're all in it for like three minutes, um, and all filmed on what for Americans is a, or Canadians is a foreign location. In this case, uh, foggy Czech Republic mm. locations, <laughs> and sometimes muddy as well, which is quite all helps with the authenticity. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a pretty straightforward script with a couple of weird additions here and there. Yeah, uh, which certainly mess around with the historical elements. Uh, I have no idea why they open with a credit that says that Merlin foretold her coming, because that's the bunkum right there. And yes. it ends with a credit that says seven years as she predicted later the English were gone, which is also bunkum. <laughs> <laughs> it was more like 23. <laughs> mm. or, at least, or something in that range. Oh, it was, like it was a seven 12 years or 23, the big event happened, so that's yeah. then turned the tide. But... Yeah, yeah, but it, it takes a good, it takes a lot longer before they're, you know, officially and formally, you know, outside of the territories in the way that she's predicting. Mm, it's, I would not. But you're right, there's a key event seven years later, but again, this is the point we're trying to make. The miniseries doesn't explain any of that. Um, it just tells you these things, and then in other parts, and then there's, in other parts there's... There's 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 a couple of moments where it could have gone Monty Python and it it just <laughs> narrowly avoids it and I yeah. think the opening I think it takes at least the opening twenty minutes to find its footing in fact I think like for the opening twenty minutes I think none of them have none of the actors have quite got their accents they haven't quite figured out the tone mm. uh, and I think there's I think it's only a handful of them I think Lily Sabisky herself and Chad Willett who plays the the knight who um, agrees to ride alongside her and slowly becomes her greatest ally mm. uh, or one of her greatest <clears> allies. I, I think they both find the tone very quickly and I think they help lead, even though they're younger than the others, I think they lead it. Yeah. Um, you know, the same goes for Neil Patrick Harris. At the first, when he appears, he's just a little bit too Neil pa- the Neil Patrick Harris we yes. all know and love now. But then he settles into being not just this this king, but being this Eng- an English, so a French king, but a French king with this kind of what am I trying to say? <laughs> I, there's a certain thing we expect from the kings we see speaking English language roles in film and TV. Yes, do you Noble, know what I mean? Noble, nobility. Uh, or lack of it sometimes. You know, sometimes mm. we expect them to be a bit foppish or a bit, uh, you know, playing the polit- political game. Yeah. And I, I feel like there's a point where he, because he never, there's no point where I think of him as a French king. Let me just say that. That's why I thought of him as an English king, right? Mm. There's no point where I think of him as a French king because of his performance and the accent he chooses. But there is a point where he shifts noticeably from being from talking quite fast and delivering this dialogue in a casual offhand manner into being feeling more like he's at home in the historical role Mm. you know and I wonder how much of that has to do with location shooting you know when they're in these 
check castles and things as well as in studio sets. He seems much more com- and he's got all these ro- the, the clothing on. You can see him sort of settling into the role and kind of going. And a lot of actors often say that that's what happens with period dramas, yeah, costuming and stuff. Um, so yeah, so the clothes so, uh, are as uncomfortable as they would have been at the time, and yeah, that hat is amazing. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I, I just think it took all of them time to set. I think director, everybody. I think mm. it's one of those things you don't get anymore. We want our films and TV to work from the first two minutes. Yeah, and I think people who do, who have that attitude will watch this and switch off. And I'm like, no, you've actually got to give it back then what would have been like the first two ad breaks, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was the fact that they start with her birth is a bit okay. <laughs> so the scene has the baby seeing the mother like perfectly, which is weird because considering you have to hold a baby right to your face for mm. them to actually even be able to see. It's a your very face odd clearly. It's a very odd camera move. It's almost like the camera move. The camera, the camera, the camera like slides forward. Yeah. And there's like a bit of liquid or something on it, and it just, it's just really odd. <laughs> I thought, imagine being the actress filming that. Oh well, you know, <laughs> but the, but this is the thing. It's such an interesting. They pick really, really good actors, right? Mm. People with a really good track record, you know, high quality people to be the various uh adults in Joan's life. Mm. And some of them, you know, pull it off brilliantly. Um and others it doesn't feel quite right. But Jacqueline Bisset, who plays her mum, is 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 famous, famous, or at least was more famous back then I should say. Mm. Um I mean I should pronounce her name Jacqueline Bisset because she's French, but she's mostly famous for um yeah, I mean, she worked with big, big directors and stars. Um, yeah, I don't know who our... I'm trying to think who our listeners will know that I can quote, but certainly for older listeners, um, they'll know exactly who she is without me having to tell them because she was with Steve McQueen in Bullet and um, she's in the original parody version of Casino Royale uh, okay. as Miss Goodthighs. <laughs> Wow, that's a great name. <laughs> Isn't it? And then she was in a whole bunch of really good films, including um, The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean and The Murder on the Orient Express. Oh, okay. I've heard of that. Yeah, the 74 version, the famous one. She's in that as Countess Andreni. And um, uh, most men who were a certain younger age in 1977 will remember her from the poster of The Deep, which was written by the guy, Peter Benchley, who wrote Jaws. Okay. Uh, so basically it was her in a bikini was made like the selling point. Um <laughs> But then she also did a lot of some historicals as well. Um, and then by the time we get into the late 80s, 90s, because, you know, sadly, they, they, you know how Hollywood treats people of a certain age. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially women. Yeah, exactly. And given she's, but she was still glamorous. She did, that. she plays, I mean, in 85, she still can play Anna Karenina in a TV version. And then the big budget miniseries are coming along. She gets to be Josephine in Napoleon and Josephine in 1987. Um and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, went back and did French a French TV French movie in '95, which I think was really good for her career. She was a really great film, um, uh, and then came back and did some more TV work. Uh, Joan of Arc. She's Isabel the mum. She's in um, G- she's in the miniseries about Jesus that came out the same year as Mary. Oh, okay. 
Um, and then uh, there was another religious one called In the Beginning, and she plays Sarah, uh, as in Abraham's. Mm. Um, so, you know, so she had a uh, quite a, career, a TV career going at the time. Uh, and then she turns up in Ally McBeal um, and so forth. But, you know, great, great, great actress. Um, but the point is that you don't see her that often. Yeah. You know, I mean, she's still working, by the way. I should point out, she's got three products, three, three films in production at the moment. Oh, cool. Um, uh, although she obviously had to take the money to be in Hitman Redemption. But... <laughs> Anyway, but but that's just one example. I mean, her father, the father is played by Powers Booth, who's one of the he passed away recently, one of the great bad guy actors, uh, as well as occasionally hero. He was one of the, my favorite TV favorite uh, TV versions of. Um, he was in the British the ITV uh, was it HBO or Showtime col- uh, uh, collaboration they did to adapt Philip Marlowe, the great detective. Okay. He was in that. He's famous in westerns. He was in uh, Tombstone, uh, Deadwood. Um, he's in Sin City. He's been voice actor on Justice League and loads of stuff. He was a, he was a vice president in Twenty Four. I mean, he's he's a guy who's well known. You know, he's another one who's mm. a, he he uh, yeah. Unlike uh, unlike Jacqueline say who had to appear in a Hitman movie, he was in, he was on a game, a Hitman game. So that shows you. <laughs> he last thing he was in before he died was Agents of Shield. Oh, cool. Gideon Malik. Okay. So, yeah, I remember when he turned up and I was like, oh my God, it's Paz Booth. Um, but I'm a big, big fan of his, been a big fan of his for 40 years now. Mm. Um, so, yeah, uh, one of the great all-round actor, tough guys. used to play. He often played mean fathers, I should point out. So it's kind of appropriate that he he's here. But but again, you know, these we're talking about, these are big names and yet they only get small parts. Because, yeah. Because, you know, Robert Logier in the opening scenes that we're talking about, he plays Father Monet, the local priest. Mm. And he was a fantastic actor, really good actor, really well known for all sorts of things. Uh, and again, he's in this very briefly. But what I like about the, the the choices they've made is that it allows the directors to do lots of close ups and let their faces do the acting. So yeah. even if the dial, even if the dialogue's not great, or if they're struggling with trying to make it feel like medieval times, they're good enough actors to convey the emotion. Yes, and that is where the film starts to really improve. I mean, Maury Chaikin, I think, is horribly miscast as Sir Robert de Baudricourt in those early episodes. You know, the, the nobleman she goes to to persuade him to send her mm. to the king, right? Yeah. The Dauphin, well, not king yet, the Dauphin, the prince. Um, Chaikin's a great actor, but he's really not the guy you want playing medieval French knight because he sounds like the New Yorker he is. Um <laughs> You know, and the list goes on. But then, you know, you've got Olympia Dukakis' mother, Babette, and then in the second episode, or the second half, uh, Shelley McLean turns up as Madame, Madame de Beaurevoir trying to help out Joan on the when Joan's imprisoned by a combination of the English and the Catholic Church. Mm. And she's amazing. Mm. I mean, she's amazing. I've seen McLean in loads of things over the years. I've never seen her do a role like this. She's stunning in it. Really good. And that's the difference. By the time you get into that second half... And you get people like McLean, you get Maximilian Schell, who another great European actor who's playing the brother Le Mestre, who's in charge of he's the one at the head of the Inquisition at the mm. court. You know, by the time you get to that point and Peter O'Toole is running full strength, the yeah. it feels like a different different you know, it's it, it's such a different piece of, of of work by then. Yeah. It's convincing. You know, you're in these low light, cramped 
monastic slash castle settings and everyone's wearing the heavy robes and there's a real sense of oppression and you know uh contrary so yeah. i would say sometimes that the sound design as in like the very 90s voiceover mm-hmm. takes you out of yes. the scene for us because we've gotten so used to that not being a thing i think because mm-hmm. for someone that hasn't seen 90s stuff in a long time it felt so 90s oh i agree you know, I remember talking to you over Messenger and saying about the fact of I feel like this is what Game of Thrones would have been if um, it had been made in the nineties. Yeah, I mean that 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 you that YouTube fake credits thing that someone put together to make say Game of Thrones in the nineties, the one that you sent me. Yeah, people have seen it's a good one that one online. <laughs> it's it, it does feel in that mold the way the explosions are shot when 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 the cannon is used to blow up a tower, which, by the way, when it happens, I was not expecting, and it's beautifully dramatic, and it's really well shot, and I was like, oh, that's where the money went. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, 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 uh, but also, I like the idea that because, it, uh, because Burgundy, is it Burgundy, is under siege? Yes, I think so. I'll have to check. I apologise to all the historians for getting it wrong. I, I we researched this two days ago and had to postpone, and my brain's just gone bleh. Um, yeah, um, but the siege that they turn up at. Also, she... I should say that medieval history is not our forte. No, neither of us. Although I've taught a fair bit of it, but um, I should have. I I apologise. We're supposed to be here to entertain the listeners. And <laughs> I should have uh, done my research slightly the thing better. Is, is that a lot of people seem to think with historians that we are jack of all trades and we know everything about it doesn't every work like little that. bit of no, history. No, it doesn't work like that. No. You're specialists. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I... not, but you are. <laughs> I'm a generalist. I, I be, funnily enough, that's how I got my, my it got into my PGC was because I'd only done a, a mixed degree, history and law. Mm. So I have a, hist- a half of a history degree. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say I specialise more early modern onwards. Mm-hmm. So, although I'm more interested in modern, which then people get very confused when I say that, and they're like, "What is modern?" Oh, Waterloo onwards. And they're yeah, like, exactly. "Wait, well, what?" Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. It's this whole thing about um, this whole thing about uh, trying to balance what we what the historians and academics describe and what people actually think they know because mm. there's a lot of there's a lot of language that has one use in everyday one meaning in everyday use and it has another meaning academically yeah uh so i think that's that's where it gets interesting um you know uh but yes, coming back to the thing about the siege, the the thing I find interesting um, is that so it's Orléans that mm. is under siege, and the thing okay. I find interesting in the TV version is that for people who don't know the play, you know, it's the thing you and I were talking about when we saw uh, Night Before uh, Night Before Christmas in, in season <laughs> one, um, where we were talking about the need for something cinematic so they say they're in Norwich and they're clearly in Ireland yes um it's a similar thing here they the Canadian it's a Canadian American co-production co-produced with European money as well it's set in they use Czechoslovakia which was quite sorry Czech Republic I apologize Czech Republic which is very different um from a lot of the scenery I mean back then it was starting to be used quite a bit for this sort of thing but it's a it's it's a very kind of dour 
great. I, I, they clearly shot mm. it later in the year. It's not a summer shoot. Um, There's and, mud. And, yeah, and, and, and you know what? That's actually what keeps the thing feeling grounded and more realistic. Mm. You know, it, it, you, we're not shooting in New Zealand, you know? It's 99, but it's not Xena and it's not Hercules. Yeah. Um, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that Euro- it looks European. It looks well, northern European. There's a whole scene where the horses get stuck in the mud and it is actually quite a tense scene. And yeah. that is important for the time because mud was dangerous. Yes, yes, agreed. Mud is actually still dangerous. But yes, of, yeah, that's a good we point. Just, we think of it as mud. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there, there's a point where in the combat, where in, in, in order to... Uh, Deal. I mean, the combat is really well thought through. I mean, and, and mm. the dynamics between the leaders and the knights and, and Joan is also well thought through. You know, it's never as simple as... One of the things I like about the film is it's not... Lily Sabisky's not given a version of Joan of Arc where she runs around saying, you must follow me because God talks through me. You know, she's yeah. very much kind of, oh, look, people are following me. I can use that. It's very kind of modern. It's very yeah. kind of... Uh, cult of personality. There's a point where she says, "Fine, you go, you go and do what you want, but these soldiers are following me, not you." Mm. And I thought that was a really interesting point. You know, they, there's no expectation that she's actually going to fight. She knows she's a figurehead, mm. but she was willing to be the figurehead. And so when, and what I find interesting is the way the experienced soldiers come to appreciate that she's willing to put her life on the line with them goes into battle, and even though they keep her, that they try to keep her protected and away from the main fighting. When the English decide to rec- realize she's the rallying point, and they aim and they shoot arrows at both her and her horse again, yeah. that felt quite realistic. Oh, we're going to take out the horse mm. as well as her, you know. Because the horse that's gets what hit. they would have done. Yes, yeah, exactly. So, so, so we could. So, so, the thing I was trying to say earlier about Orleon not looking like Orleon—that's I get that, but that's a problem with all, all of all the things that you and I have watched that are set in the past. Well, don't you, you can't remember, film them there. Don't you remember Glory shot from a different side? Yeah, no, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But this is exactly the point, isn't it? Uh, it's when we're, when filmmakers are choosing to tell stories set in the past. There is only, given we've built over the past most of the time, yes. you can't exactly, you know, it's not Doctor Who. We can't just get in a TARDIS and turn up at someone and go, oh, look, point your camera at it. You know, I mean, and, and it also depends how well you know the world. Mm. Like, 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 if you've never been somewhere, you won't know. You yeah, buy into the fiction. Yeah, if you don't know Norwich is on the sea, you wouldn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, and you wouldn't know it's all, and it's up a hill, and it's not surrounded. And even then, I even, I suspect that even back then, when there was less humans living there, I still think Norwich would not be quite as isolated in the middle of a forest as it looked in <laughs> before Christmas. And here's and and here they make a point about distances. They make a point about time. Nothing, yeah, you know there there are on screen. Uh, title cards to tell you when and where things are happening and you realise there is you know they do a really everything feels cramped because it's focused in on people's faces but every now and then when they can afford to do a, a like a, a shot from a distance and give you a sense of scale um, because they're shooting out in the countryside and there's a bit of room and then, you know there's nothing they need to CGI out too much mm. uh, it feels it feels it, it, you know there's just enough of both kinds of shot that it for that it feels real or re- more yeah. realistic than I expected it to be, I should say. Which I think is to its credit. I think hmm. it, I think it's, and I think the hardest thing about all of this is that 
how how do you deal with fundamentally with the story of what is basically a teenager who hears voices and yeah. somehow convinces a whole bunch of people <laughs> that those voices are from God and not the devil, and also she should be allowed to help lead armies. You know, yeah. people often say, "Well, okay, how do we even know any of this?" And this is um, this is where it gets quite interesting because there's been obviously there's a lot of, there's a lot of history around history sort of produced around uh Joan in this period and and, and mm. this period. And um I was looking at a fairly recent um ed- edition hang on a minute, let me just find it. Where is my Kindle? Uh I was looking at a recent book that a historian has done and I thought what was interesting, she made the point that this is actually a very well recorded time in terms of uh, 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 primary sources mm. um, which I hadn't realised for a star it seems we have Joan's own account oh do we mm-hmm. then we have tr- courtroom transcripts I know that one Yeah, I know that and one. then we yeah. have a whole host of other do- do- documents and that absolutely fascinates me this idea that we actually may have more access. Hang on a minute. I'll tell you the name of the book. The Maid and the Queen, The Secret History of Joan of Arc by Nancy Goldstone. Okay. Um, and her, so she's actually added a new twist to the whole thing because she says the thing that's missing from most of the accounts of this period is the importance of another woman who we think may well be Joan of Arc's mentor in the whole at court and that's Yolanda of Aragon. Oh, okay. And so this book is about uncovering all of that. Um, and yeah, in her introduction, she points out the sheer volume and range of available material. Yeah. And Cause I... I knew we had access to the court, uh, courtroom transcripts. Yes. Cause it's quite famous for the fact that we still have access to that. Yes. Yes, exactly. And um... so one of the, one of the things I find interesting, for example, is that, um, one of the things that's interesting is the idea that uh, the French victories were engineered. I like this is from a review. This is this is a summary summary piece by one of the reviewers on Amazon that summarizes the element from the book quite well. Yeah. What adds to the credibility is that Jean's, Jeanne's actions are demystified. While she was a helpful morale booster, the actual French victories were engineered by able military professionals like the illegitimate son of the Duke of Orleans. Mm. I feel like that's something this miniseries gets correct. Yeah. She 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 very rarely says we must like there's a point a couple of points where she says we should be doing this but the, the and and occasionally she comes up with a tactic but mostly the, the it's it's made clear that the the military the military men she works with are doing their job. Yeah. And occasionally she's simply reminding them of why they're doing their job. Yeah, I don't know. Is that fair? Do you think that's the way the TV show would put um, it across? I I think one of the most important scenes is when she first goes to meet the king. Well, the the fawn. Um, And he... They do the whole famous... um, She finds him in the crowd rather than... Yes. Because they put a fake king on the throne kind of thing. Yes, test her powers. Yeah. And the fact that he's... They mention, oh, it's very famous that you're a young king. They won't believe that I'm, as an older man, the king. And that's all. They talk about that. And he's like, well, even if she does, it's still a 
talking point. It's it's yes. basically propaganda. Yes, there's exactly the the the, the 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 you know the script. This is what I mean about why it takes. It feels the miniseries takes a while to get going because it's only when they get to that aspect that you start to see Harris settling into the role. You see O'Toole settling into his role as the as a bishop. You know what I mean? Mm. It, it, that scene. I feel like that's the point where the whole show starts to come together. And also, Sabisky, once she has her hair cut... Oh, wait, I wanted wear... that haircut. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's actually kind of a, quite a French haircut. <laughs> but but the one she, when she goes from... Like, all the publicity for the show has her with that really long hair mm. that she was famous for. And actually, uh, the actress, I mean, is famous for. And then... The moment that's only like the earliest part of the, the miniseries. After the for that, once the, once she gets it cut, it stays short for the rest of the miniseries. And I did she's dressing like it does look grow. Yeah, yeah, but Which but what I'm yeah exactly. Um, but what I mean is that there's a recognition of the way she dressed, the stance she took, the more traditional. You know what we all, what we ha- do know and understand to some degree from from history. Her the choices she made to dress like a man. What you mm-hmm. know. Uh, I like the, also the point that in the debates raised when she's talking with the archbishop. Oh, sorry, I keep saying archbishop. I mean bishop. Um, the the discussion. Uh, you know, I I love how they they keep raising. Um, I mean, Bishop Conshaw is just one of the many, many people throughout who raises the issue of why she is it. She chooses to dress like a man because that's offensive to God because she's hiding her, her womanhood and she keeps pointing out that how she dresses has got nothing to do. <laughs> Yes. With God and everything to do with what she's trying to do, uh, and also what and... she's trying to protect, because she was traveling around with a lot of men, and she makes that point, doesn't she? Yeah, it's a really good bit. Again, really good bit of dialogue where she's like, "Don't you think this is basically?" She's saying, "Don't you think it's safer if I look dressed like this?" Mm. I thought that was brilliant. She it, it, she turns it back on the men. Yeah, in a really smart way. Now, again, it's I don't kind know of how your fault that I have to dress like this. Yeah, and I don't know how accurate that is to the time. Um, but I thought are... it was well, well thought through. There are transcripts of her saying that she dressed as a man to protect herself from rape. Mm. Um, well, exactly. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So yeah, it's and it makes perfect sense. Although the armor outfit that they put her in in the miniseries. It's still quite feminine. Like it has mm. that little skirt, mm. which I know at the time wouldn't have been feminine, but mm. to modern eyes looks feminine. Mm. Mm. So that's kind of like, that's a really cute little skirt. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's interesting. Uh, on, on, uh, there's an interesting uh, piece of writing from uh, the American Historical Association's magazine, Perspectives on History. Oh, okay. From from two thousand, uh, historian Catherine Norberg, uh, specialist in um, European women's history in early modern France, mm. does a really good piece on three nineties versions of Joan of Arc. This one, the Luc Besson one, mm. and an, and the French one that had come out before both of these, Jean La Pucelle, which is a big four-hour epic from the great director Jacques Rivette, um, which is we we really have to put on our list because um, it's now been remastered in 4K and it's it's a I, re- I really want you know I haven't seen it in a very long time and I'd really like to see his version of it now we've seen this one mm. um, because it's. It, it's the reviews are, to this day say you know this is the one that feels more medieval, seems more realistic, works, etc., etc. But one of the points that um, that uh, Norberg makes about this mini series um, is she says that 
the executive producer, Gurnan, made a big point at the time about trying to get the historical details right. Mm. They had a lawyer involved with the script because he was interested in history and he was able to get access to records and they, they did a huge amount of research. They decided on the swords, the wardrobe, and Norberg says, it looks to me like he did his job. Yeah. She said, I quote, costumes, battle scenes, and most of the details look accurate. She then says, I think he failed to take a good look at Joan herself. And he says, I don't mean her costume. I mean trying to present us with a compelling or more interesting Joan because they tried to make her likable. Yeah. Quote, Joan rides into battle but frets over bloodshed. Joan loves children and sets up a soup kitchen for them in war-torn vaucouleurs. Joan tells the war-weary peasants to start rebuilding their lives. Joan organises a kind of public's work project to bring the people together. And she finishes with, the CBS Joan appears to be running for public office. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's a really interesting you know, thing to say, because is that possibly how they... We, you know, is that maybe the, the again talking about the nineties? You know, the era in which the West Wing came out, and you know, Hillary Clinton came onto the stage in a big way. Mm. And do, do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if there was some nineties influence in that sense. You know, in order for the influence, the audience to mm. take it more seriously, they needed to believe that Joan, even at her young age, had a a greater vision. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know. It, it's kind of a thing where you can see um, the nineties influence come into it because there was a thing where she would apparently, according to uh, documents, I don't know what documents, but mm. I've just read everything off the internet can be taken with a pinch of salt, but mm. uh, apparently she would chase off the prostitutes that would come... Um, with the soldiers. Come after the soldiers, yeah. Yeah, the hangers-on. Yeah. Which, now that a lot of people have a very different view on sex work, mm-hmm. is something that I can understand why they chose not to show. But at the same time, is an understandable trait for someone who's main well not main characteristic but one of the most important things is their virginity well that brings us to what i think i felt was a painful yet controversial moment in, mm. in the second half and i thought i thought it was very very well handled because rel- yeah. we don't see it it's off screen but basically there is a point during the inquest the the trial where the jesuit the, the 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 Jesuit in charge basically they because they 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 having had the debate already about her clothing they take it away from her yeah and he basically gives free rein to the knights guarding her to do what they want yeah and what I found interesting about this sequence two things I think one is the choice not to show it, which I think was brilliant. Mm. Apart from the fact it would have been too extreme for television at the time anyway. Yes. Unlike post-HBOification of things, where they would have made a big deal of showing you the whole thing. Um, I thought it was very... I thought that was subtly handled in... Well, it wasn't that subtle, the screaming over the soundtrack, but the point is the way the camera uses the face of the people hearing it. Mm. I thought was smart. But I think the other thing that was interesting about it is that there is a... It is a... 
it is implied that it is more a question of torture and punishment and not simply you know, oh let these guys satisfy themselves as men. Yeah. This is about the power you know, it's very much in keeping with where we are now today in the in the post Me Too era where we understand that this is about power. And mm. there is a long history in certain military conflicts of rape being used as a weapon. Yes. Uh, there is one tribe in Afghan, for example, legendarily, where they use that on the male prisoners they are, they, they capture. Mm. And they don't do it because they enjoy it. They do it to them to make those men suffer and make those men feel that they have been robbed of something. Yeah, it's it's literally a tool, and and there are there are yeah there's, there's records of this happening in the Middle East as well, mm. and so I thought that was a modern touch, but at the same time didn't seem completely far away from the excesses we know soldiers committed at the time. Yeah, um, but I don't know enough about the trial to know whether that's true or not. I have a feeling it may not have been. But we both know that the Inquisition, having talked about the Inquisition in our Assassin's Creed episode, we both know the terrible things that were sanctioned. Yes. So I find it at least semi-believable. Uh, coming back to the cache of documents, um, History Extra, the BBC uh, History Magazine's website. Yes. Yeah, good, very good site. So 2014, they did a good piece on the real Joan of Arc from Helen Castor. Mm. And um, that's a good place to go for a one-stop run through the things we you think you know and the things you should know. Yeah. Um, and she she summarizes the document caches that exist. Um, she says there's two remarkable caches of documents that have survived over the centuries. One is the trial in 1431 that condemned her to death as a her as a heretic, and the other is a trial that was completed 25 years later to clear her name. Yes. And in the in, the tra in these transcripts, we have first-hand testimony from Joan, her family, and her friends. However, what she's talking about in those trials is deeply, I quote Castor, deeply infused with the awareness of who she had become and what she had achieved. In other words, she's looking back with the hindsight of who she's become. And I feel like that's something the miniseries has adopted, mm. you know? Um, I feel like that early sequence is the weirdness we were talking about. You know, this whole thing that Norberg says about, you know, running for office. I think that's because that's how she framed Joan. To some degree, that's how Joan is reframing her, 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 her past in the courtroom. Yeah. Because, of course, think how great that makes her sound. <laughs> mm -hmm. Look what I did on the way. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is. It is quite interesting. Um, it's also interesting that the, uh, the 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 trial where she was condemned is um, very different from the the trial where she is uh, uh, cleared in terms of where it takes place, who's in charge. Um, it's quite interesting. Quite interesting mm. how things change over time. Um, also, the the effect on the English is quite interesting as well. I do think it's in the, the, the in so in the second half when she is um, imprisoned by the English on on behalf of the church mm. in order to be interrogated. There's a point before the interrogation where she's where um, Shirley McLean, Shirley McLean's character uh, gives her an out, an opportunity to live. 
Madame de Beauvoir basically says, be my ward and I will yeah. train you in, in all the high society and make you acceptable and then you can still be who you are. Mm. And Joan basically kind of says, well, then I'm not who I am if I do that. Yeah, because uh, that was one thing that I did quite like. It's the fact of they kept on referring to the fact that she couldn't read or write. Yes, which which is true. She was illiterate. Yeah. As um, were many people at the time. Yeah, so she had um, a nun write her letters for her and then the messengers read her messages. Mm-hmm. So, which... It just, that felt like a nice touch because it would have been just so easy just to go, yeah, she could read and write. Mm. Especially because it was only really a thing of the rich at the time mm. to be able to read and write, so... So I, th- I think, I mean, there's so much more we could say because there's so much that we could say just about Joan herself and what the records say and what we seem to know. Yeah, um, but I, I think, you know, with the amount of time we have, I think it's time to assess the percentages, you know, because yeah. for this Am- you can see, you can find this miniseries on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. I actually think it's worth watching. I We haven't even talked about the religious aspects. I think the film does an immensely... I think a uh, real credit to Christian de Geer as a director and and his team for finding ways to convey the idea that Joan believes in what she is hearing and seeing, but others can't see and hear it, including yeah. us, the audience. Mm. And I particularly like their choice to suggest that she's looking up to God, asking to be saved on the pyre. I, in other words, you know, to die as quickly as possible. Yeah. And in the opening scene, you think, "Oh, that's what's happened." It's almost like she disappears in the flames. But in the in the when they stage it properly at the end, and it all takes this, the horrible length that it does, mm. what you see is that she's begging for something that doesn't so much come as it's just the coincidence of the fire yeah. leaping up. Um. And the degree to which faith, the whole business with Holt, when she says, show me a crucifix, yeah. she needs to die seeing the cross. I, I just found that, I was quite moving. Hmm. You know, as somebody who's a lapsed Christian, I, 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 I get it. Yeah. I get the importance. What, what else has she lived for? She's lived such a, a short life and yet such a full life in some ways. Hmm. But everything that has driven her through this throughout has been faith and nationalism, and the faith is all that's left at this point. Yeah, um, actually, I think the nationalism is a really important point, especially as I said earlier, it's the fact of nation wasn't really a thing at the time, oh, and mm-hmm. when they kept on going on about a united France, I was like. They don't really make it clear that it's not quite the France that we would know. Mm-hmm. It's because an idea of a country or a nation was very different at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was mostly just two families battling over a, a crown, mm-hmm. which, to be honest, most civil wars and uh, conflicts is that. But, yeah, mm-hmm. it's... Um, the fact of Joan of Arc has become a national symbol. Mm, mm. And she is now a saint, and uh, which wasn't until the 20th century, I believe. Um, I think that's a really important bit of her character. And something that the character in the miniseries actually seemed to understand. 
Mm. Like the mm. fact that she understood that the king was using her for propaganda. Yes, yes. Uh, there's just it's an interestingly balanced, especially compared to the Besson film. It's an interestingly balanced um, vision of politics, religion, belief, reality. Mm. You know, I I like the way her family slowly come around to it. I like the idea. I like the way we see her brother be inspired by her, but then become a casualty of war. Yeah. And the way that affects her relationship with the rest of her family when she comes back, I really enjoyed that. I again, as far that probably entirely fictional, but it was a very good. It it was a solid bit of drama mm. that really supported our vision but also showed you the reality i love it when she says to her father and says i am scared to go back out yeah you know the the she's been out to war now and he looks at and he understands and does a very he he's very manly well as powers booth of course he is but but <laughs> you know to treat his daughter the way a father would treat a son at the time you know again may not have been something that happened but it felt good to see that in yeah. uh, from an audience point of view, from a dramatic point of view. I would want to believe that that was possible in that era. I don't know how real. Um, the, just just briefly before we, we finish up and I give a score, I think um, one of the things I should point out from... Uh, there's a scene towards the end when she's in prison where her her friend, the, the knight that Willett plays, turns up to see her. That's based on the fact that one of her friends from Rouen, townsman who met her during her imprisonment, um is one of the witnesses to statements that were made on uh, on the day of her execution. Mm. Um, his name was Pierre Cusquel, and he was brought in illicitly to inspect Joan in cell by his friend, who was a master builder, and to see, oh, look, celebrated prisoner. Um, and his account of Joan's death has... Uh, it was told in 1456, so it's many years later, and it's grown in the telling since his first statement to a preliminary hearing. Mm. And it's supposedly, he supposedly bumped into an Englishman who was the secretary to the English king, who returned from the execution and cried, we are all undone, for a saint has been burned. Um, <laughs> so apparently, <laughs> you know, and one of the things about, the, so 1456, when they have the the, set, the hearing to clear her, there's all these people going, we are, whoa, we are, it was all of her, all these people who saw her burn. And obviously watching a, a, a young girl burned alive is not an easy thing by any means. No. But at the same time, we have to remember that she was condemned by people who genuinely believe she was a heretic. So I ha we have to take that whole idea with a pinch of salt, you know. And I think that that's possibly the last, the most important point. That in the end, as with all these things, you've got to take it all with a pinch of salt. But I can think of worse... I've definitely seen worse visions, dramatic visions of Joan, even if I've seen better ones. Yeah. So, uh, percentage. Hmm. Tough uh, one, isn't it? Yeah, especially because it's again, it's from twenty-one years ago. So we've well, got that's fine. Put it in yeah. context. So, 60? I'm. Yeah, that's exactly what I was about to say. Sixty <laughs> percent. <laughs> I think it's is more a leaning fair. towards non non fictional, but it's obviously got the fictional aspects. Like we can't know exactly what everyone said at the time, and um... especially when we're relying on a court transcript that happens after these events and is by you know is is coloured by people who are aware they're delivering these this information at a court at a trial. Yeah, yeah, agreed. But nevertheless, it feels 
it feels a lot more real than some of the things we've watched in this series. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, not in the first 20 minutes, then it feels like a sixth form play. <laughs> <laughs> but and, and at first I was thinking, how does this thing win awards? And then it really locks into place and really gets going and becomes genuinely... I mean, I'm really pleased we watched it. Yeah. I, 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 you know. The only was... problem I had was that um, some of my neighbours decided it would be a really good time to go talk on their front porches well. while I was trying to watch. Like... Hey, if, if if Joan can cope with all those people crowding around while yeah. she tells people things, that's fine. So, we agree with 60%. Mm-hmm. Um, where can people find you, Jenna? Uh, they can find me at Kitty on Twitter. Uh, you can also find me with a brand new article on the Bunkzilla blog, uh, which um, <laughs> uh, is on cheese rolling. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> your county's famous uh, sport. sport. Is it a sport or is it just an occasional thing? It's, it only happens once a year, but people so... do call it sports. So um, yes. I have joked with uh, other Gloucestershire friends about writing a comic book in the um form of a shonen sports manga oh yes yes <laughs> it needs to get that needs to happen um and uh right terrific so uh people can hear me on uh another hustlers of culture soon and there will by the time this airs you will almost certainly be also hearing um the return of tv review podcast binges and box sets with my co-host anna hussey <laughs> Um and uh, yes, Jen, you will be guesting on that at some point. Will uh, I? What yes. could it be on? I do not oh, know. Could it be on a certain demon and angel that I'm a bit obsessed with? Mm-hmm. It may well be. Um, <laughs> and um, we will. We're also planning a real history crossover episode with Hustlers as well. I think um, we should do the ultimate crossover with all three podcasts. It'll happen. It will then, happen. Give me time. And then you have two girls, two boys. Perfect. Yeah. Give me. Give me time. We, uh, there's. A, I. I actually have some ideas for that one. Could <gasps> uh, because we've got to find the right Topics. thing to watch. Um, what I actually want to find is I want to find something we can watch that is a film that was then represented in a longer TV version, hmm. so we can make it about TV and film podcast. Hmm. So, um, yeah, anyway, uh, people can find me at 48 Consultancy online in most social media, as well as at 48consultancy.com, my website. Um, also, 48 Publishing, if you wish to talk to us about podcasting or writing. And, of course, we are at Real History underscore UK on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, and you can talk to us there. Yeah, so... I wonder if people can tell when it's me posting or you posting. <laughs> Uh, well, we'll find out. Uh, <laughs> thanks for listening, folks, and yes. uh, we'll, we'll tune in again soon. Yeah. See you soon. Au revoir. <laughs>